0: Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from OSEA. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OSEAMalibu.com. That's O S E A MALibu.com code SUMMER.
1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. As Islamic State loses its grip in the Middle East, foreign fighters who came to join the caliphate want to go home. Governments around the world face a troubling choice about whether and how to readmit their radicalized citizens. And some people see wine as more than just a drink. They see an investment. For years, that usually meant wines from Bordeaux. But that's changing. A rising fermented favorite is Burgundy, and buyers are intoxicated by it. But first, there's more hope that a costly trade war between China and America may be coming to an end. This weekend, there were talks between America's trade representative, Robert Lighthizer, and the Chinese vice premier, Liu He. Things went well enough that President Donald Trump delayed America's next campaign in the trade war, a big boost to tariffs on Chinese goods that had been scheduled for this coming Friday. That sent Chinese stocks on a tear earlier today. China's currency hit a seven month high. But the tit for tat tariffs the countries have been imposing on each other for more than a year have already had serious effects. How hard will it be to heal the wounds inflicted so far? A single commodity provides clues.
2: Soybeans have really been at the heart of this trade war. Soybeans alone were around 9% of total American exports to China in 2017.
1: Samaya Keynes is our U.S. economics correspondent.
2: I went to visit Tim Bardol, who runs this family farm near Rippey in central Iowa. Hi. Hello. Nice to meet you. Oh, hello. I'm Tim. Nice to meet you, hi. There was quite a lot of snow and and not much farming going on, but it did mean that I got to see all the massive equipment that they were storing in their barn. Wow, that is a large tractor. (laughs) That one? Yeah.
3: Yeah, the one in front of it's big.
2: He farms with his brother and his father. Uh, this
3: Hi. is my brother Pete.
2: Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I'm Samaya. Hi. And my
3: son,
2: Hi, nice Hi. to meet you. Nice to meet you. Hi. And he's actually Hi. just brought his son into the business, which is putting some pressure on the operation because it's another family to support from the income of the farm. The reason I was talking to them is that they've really been affected by this 25% tariff that China has put on soybeans, these soybeans that they produce.
1: And so why did China pick soybeans as the commodity to to sort of respond to tariffs with?
2: It was a very calculated move. So partly it was because American farmers have political clout. There's another reason, which is that soybeans are just a very large chunk of trade. And so it's hard to retaliate in a sort of equal and opposite way to the Americans if you miss out soybeans.
1: And what impact has this had on the price Mr. Bardol can get for, for his crop?
2: He spent a lot of time studying the price of soybeans.
3: Here's a, here's a weekly chart. End May, you could still price decent. And then it dropped. And when you get to July, right here where it came up, that's when the tariffs went into effect. And that's the other thing hard about pricing is...
2: Prices fell to their lowest point in 11 years. And so after he harvested the beans, he just held on to them, waiting for the price to improve.
3: Farmers are horrible marketers. And if you find one that says they're not, odds are they're lying to you. One reason that we hadn't sold soybeans is because they were below cost of production. So we're selling at a loss. Wait for another week, wait for another week, and it... At some point, you just got to pull the trigger.
2: So you did end up selling below the cost of production?
1: Yes. The Chinese tariffs on soybeans are hurting farmers like Tim Bardol, but they're also hurting farmers in
4: China. China is extremely fond of pork. David Rennie is our Beijing bureau chief. Half the world's pigs live in China and die in China, I guess. About half a billion are raised in China every year, and they eat a lot of soy. So I went to a pig farm on the coastal province of Fujian and I went to see one of a really typical kind of smallish pig farm, He had about 150 pigs. Mr. He, the farmer, does not know exactly how much of the soy in the sacks that he feeds his pigs comes from America, but he does know something important, which is that they got more expensive. No. He's spending now about $10 a day more than he normally does feeding his pigs. So,
1: David, how is China dealing with this, this, this tariff tit for tat?
4: The Chinese have immediately started buying more soy from elsewhere, particularly places like Brazil, elsewhere in Latin America. They're also trying to grow more of their own. That's a kind of long running plan of theirs. But it, China is a big country, but it doesn't have a lot of good farmland and it doesn't have a lot of clean water. And so planting more of one thing it means you plant less of another. So there's always a trade-off in China. It's a it's a very crowded country and food security is a big concern for the government.
1: And what about sort of changing the demands at the, the bottom of the food chain, as it were? Can farmers just simply choose to use less soy and use more of something else?
4: It is the case that China uses a kind of old-fashioned pig feed, which has a much higher proportion of soy than some of the more scientific feeds uh, that the big industrial farmers use in Europe and in America. So one of the fears is that if pushed hard enough, China might actually change the mix and use a lot less soy in their pig feed, and that could make a big, big difference.
1: So, America isn't the only producer of soybeans. Is is there a risk that China will essentially find other suppliers?
2: Going to another supplier isn't entirely straightforward. There are some fairly big competitors to America, Brazil being the main one. And over the past few months, Brazil has been selling a lot more beans to China. The thing to know about soybean sales is that they're very seasonal. In the long run, there are questions about whether the Chinese will switch to rely on Brazil more heavily in the future. Brazil has some infrastructure limitations. It can be tricky to get the soybeans from the middle of the country to the ports. And the seasonal thing means that if you want beans at the time of the year when Americans are producing beans, it does really make more sense to go to America.
1: So if China eventually agrees to get rid of these tariffs on soybeans, how easy will it be to kind of back out of all this, to get back to business as usual?
2: I should say that, that things have recovered a little bit already. As of mid-February, the, the Chinese had bought around 7 million tonnes of soybeans, and, and prices have recovered. And, and actually, Chinese negotiators just promised to buy even more, so, so perhaps we'll see even more sales. Those sales are still well below what they would have to be for them to catch up relative to last year, But it's not nothing, and and it's certainly no longer the case that American beans are cheaper than Brazilian or or Argentine beans. So lots of that is down to optimism that there will be this deal. That all said, if this was all left to the markets, I think that there might be some questions about whether the volume of American soybean exports would recover to where they were last year, say, before all of this trade conflict... In the short run, the Chinese are facing this this quite nasty bout of African swine fever which means that they're having to kill a lot of their pigs and that means less demand for soybeans which is the, the feed for those pigs.
1: Whether it's left to the markets is an open question, of course. I mean, if there is a trade deal, you might well see China committing to really big purchases of of soybeans. So there's plenty of going on here. But I wonder if there's a, a broader lesson we can draw about these wranglings over this one commodity and what it says about the trade war, because farmers on both sides are being hurt by it.
2: I think the lesson to take away from this is that there is pain. These low prices were nasty. But to an extent that the Trump administration has been buying its way out of it. Last year, soybean farmers, including Tim, got a payment of $1.65 per bushel as a sort of, we know you're hurting, but here have this cash and it'll it'll carry you through. So I think if there was any lesson to take away from all of this, it would be that trade wars are not easy to win, they're expensive to win. And thinking about these farmers, they really don't want this handout. They say it was needed, they needed the cash, but they'd much rather be making money from selling their beans.
3: We're definitely hurting. I hope things balance out and get prices up a bit so you can do this for a profit. I mean, it's it's really fun working long hours and everything, but uh, it's nice to make money once in a while.
1: Samia, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
5: That's stamps.com. Code program.
1: As Islamic State nears a defeat in Syria, it's uncertain what will happen to the tens of thousands of radicalized foreigners who traveled to join its ranks. Many of them died on the battlefield while others, like the young women who became so-called IS brides, started families amidst the conflict. In 2015, Shamima Begum, then aged just 15, traveled from Britain to Syria with two other schoolgirls to marry an IS soldier.
5: When I went to Syria, I was just a housewife. I didn't know what I was getting into when I left, and I just was hoping that maybe for me, for the sake of me and my child, they, they let me come back, because I can't live in this camp forever. It's not really possible.
1: Now, Ms. Begum wants to come home with her newborn child, although she's expressed little remorse for her actions. Sajid Javid, the British Home Secretary, has said he'll strip Ms. Begum of her citizenship.
4: When someone turns their back on the fundamental values and supports terror, they don't have an automatic right to return to the UK.
1: Governments around the world face similar decisions. Last week, America's Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, said he'd revoke the citizenship of Hoda Muthana, who was born in the country but left university to join IS.
5: She is a terrorist. She's not a U.S. citizen. She ought not return.
1: Countries face a dilemma. Their citizens want protection. But should they risk bringing acknowledged radicals back home?
6: You certainly have a lot of cases who went to join this group out of ideological reasons, because they believed in uh, the idea of establishing a caliphate, because they believed in the idea of rejecting Western or or non-Muslim governments. Uh, on the other hand, you have cases of people who were brought there against their will. They were brought there as children. Uh, you have some cases of women whose husbands took the kids and went, and then the women felt like they had no choice. So there's a, a range of things that drew people
1: to Syria and Iraq over the past five years. Greg Carlstrom is our Middle East correspondent, based in Cairo. In terms of what happens now, now that, that these people want to come home, what what options do countries have?
6: So you've had about 7,000 of the 40,000-plus foreign fighters who have already come back to their home countries, and broadly, their home countries have taken three approaches to them. You've had some that have tried to de-radicalize returning foreign fighters that have set up ideological programs to almost sort of reprogram returnees. You've had efforts in the United States and other countries to prosecute people who've come back. Uh, And then you have a number of countries that right now are trying to prevent them from coming home altogether by stripping them of their
1: citizenship. Right. And that sets up something of a, a, well, I mean, a a moral and a legal dilemma. I mean, what what are the dimensions of that?
6: So Australia, for example, has a law which allows the Australian government to revoke citizenship uh, from dual nationals who join terror groups. And it's used this a number of times since 2017. Uh, but there's a number of international treaties which say that you can't make people stateless. You can't revoke the citizenship of a person who doesn't have a second one. Britain has ignored this in a few cases, and they have gone ahead and stripped citizenship from, from people who are only Brits. Uh, most recently, in the case of Shamima Begum, they've made the argument that because she is of Bangladeshi descent, she could be eligible for a, a Bangladeshi passport, and therefore uh, they're not actually making her stateless. That's the legal issue
1: well and uh, it's somewhat more straightforward when you you know, you have citizens of one country and it's clear cut in in that case but a lot of women who who have traveled to to join is have had children while abroad how how does that complicate matters
6: that presents a different set of issues i think there's there's broad sympathy for the children who were either brought there as children or certainly the ones who were born there Uh, who, through no fault of their own, uh, ended up living in Islamic State-controlled territory. But there you run into an issue of, if you bring them back, these are children who have spent years, their formative years in many cases, going to Islamic State schools, studying Islamic State curriculum. Uh, And so then the question becomes, how do you almost reprogram them when they come back? And this gets into these sort of deradicalization efforts that we've seen in
1: a number of countries... Do you get a sense that there is a consensus around a good way or whether these kinds of programs can be successful at all?
6: You're never quite sure if these programs actually work. Uh, So you take the case of Saudi Arabia, where they've had a deradicalization center for about 15 years now. And they've had more than 3,000 people go through the program to date, and they say that 85 to 90% of them have been successful graduates, which means they have not gone back to uh, jihad or to terrorism since they graduated. But that also means hundreds of people have. It's failed in hundreds of cases. The idea that someone was a success story just because they have not emerged from the program and, and gone back to being a militant, it doesn't mean they've necessarily changed their views or,
1: or been... De-radicalized. It just means they they haven't done anything since they were released. So, how is it possible then for these governments who you know are, are tussling with whether or not to to allow people back? How is it possible to convince them that that this isn't an enormous security risk?
6: Well, it is a security risk. And you can certainly understand uh, from the perspective of a a politician or a security official, uh, you don't want to be the person responsible for letting potentially dangerous people back into the country. But the flip side of this is that doing nothing is also a security risk. And we've seen what happens in the past. You look at... uh, Osama bin Laden, who had his Saudi citizenship revoked decades ago, and they didn't cease to be a threat. They planned a number of very high-profile terror attacks, and they, they struck Western countries a number of times. And you could see something similar happening here, where hundreds or perhaps thousands of people uh, who joined the Islamic State, if they are not dealt with, if they are simply allowed to go free, you could see them down the road as well becoming a, a threat just uh, the same way Bin Laden and al-Qaeda did.
1: But the suggestion is that many of these young brides weren't combatants, weren't actually on the battlefield. Does that play into how much they're held accountable?
6: There's been a, a presumption in some of the media coverage and some of the discussion about this, uh, that the women who went to join the group uh, were all non-combatants. They were merely brides. They went there to, to have families and raise their families. Uh, and in reality, there were many cases of women who joined the morality police, the Hezbollah, which... Uh, detained and tortured and occasionally executed Syrians and Iraqis who uh, s- smoked, shaved, uh, uncovered their hair uh, for various transgressions of their, their moral code. So uh, it's something that you really have to take on a case-by-case basis, and you, you can't make sweeping presumptions of either guilt or innocence here.
1: We've we've talked about the sort of just letting people back into the country or attempts uh, at de-radicalization, that there is another option in the form of, of prosecution, right? I mean, one of, one of the things that could happen is they're brought home, but held up, I guess, in some cases for, for treason.
6: And there are cases of that. Uh, the United States, a couple of years ago, sentenced one man to 20 years in prison for joining Islamic State. Uh, it indicted a second man last summer, and his trial is now working its way through the courts. Uh, but it's harder than you would think, uh, mostly because evidence is the issue. Uh, It's one thing to detain someone on the battlefield and hold them in a makeshift jail in eastern Syria. But to bring them back home, you need evidence that will stand up in a court in Europe or in the United States or wherever else. Uh, And that's proven very difficult.
1: Greg, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Berry Brothers and Rudd has been running the same fine wine shop in a well-heeled part of London since the 17th century. Our mothership, if you will, is St. James's Street, home of gentlemen's club land. Simon Staples, the company's sales director, has himself been in the wine world for quite some time. I started in 1996, and when I came in here, I'd heard about us. I'd heard about this fabled shop in Piccadilly that sold the most rare bottles of wine. Although wine is his passion, the stuff from one region just didn't impress him.
0: Most of Burgundy isn't very exciting,
1: and I think it's quite a lot of it is very disappointing. Burgundy, Mr Staples felt, was thin, underwhelming, too variable. But after 13 years in the industry, he had a revelation. If Burgundy is right, it's the greatest thing on
4: the planet to drink, without a doubt. It's not right that often, but a bottle of great Burgundy will lift you closer to your maker.
1: But Mr. Staples is not the only one for whom Burgundy has become attractive. Wine investors are starting to flock to it. The prices of the fancier investment quality
0: stuff have more than doubled in the past three years. So when, when you think of wine, it is true that you, you don't very often think about wine investing. You think more about drinking it. These days, Matthew Favas writes about business and finance for The Economist. And having worked in the trade for four or five years selling wine to restaurants, I can say that drinking wine is what most people do with it. Now, wine investing has become something much bigger over the last 15, 20 years. So starting from the early 2000s, this secondary market has evolved from being a one billion market to four billion today. Um, And what's it like then as as an asset? It's, It's a peculiar asset because... You won't be able to sell it as quickly as your usual investments. When you buy wine, there is a cost attached to it because you need to go through a broker to find your wine. And they take a margin. So it's not as illiquid as a collectible, but it's not as liquid as a mainstream asset that you can buy on the stock market either. And so why the growth then in interest in particular in Burgundy? Even if you go back just, just to 2010-11, Bordeaux was 95% of the wine investment market. Now that's gone down to 60, 65 percent. One reason is that Bordeaux probably suffered from its own popularity, it became too expensive. Secondly, the main buyers of Bordeaux, among which during the early 2010s, Asian buyers, especially Chinese, were, were quite prominent. When Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, came into power in twenty twelve, he put into place a campaign to crack down on corruption. And one symptom of corruption is the fact that use gifts to to buy favours. And wine was quite popular to do these kind of things. Um, And Bordeaux being the most famous, Bordeaux was targeted for that. So Chinese buyers explored other regions among which Burgundy emerged as, as I guess, the winner. And what's attractive about Burgundy? So Burgundy is attractive because it has also a long history. So the estates used to be owned by churches and monks, and they did a lot of work very early on in the history of the region to map out what the best estates were, and even within vineyards to map out what the best parcels were. So it is a recognized region, which is useful if you want to invest in something, because then you can resell it. But there's lots of known wine regions, right, in Europe and elsewhere in the world. Why Burgundy in particular? It's not enough to produce, you know, pretty good wines. It's not enough to be on the map of the wine world. You need to have some really iconic names that you can buy so that you are sure to resell them at a high price. And Burgundy has a few like that. Beyond just the the Burgundy uh, makers, do you think broadly that this rise in Burgundy is a good thing? It's a good thing for people who already own some bottles. Yeah, sure. Right? Wish I did. (laughs) It's probably a bit more mixed for people who are invested in the wine market but don't own Burgundy yet. Because on the one hand, the market is more diversified, so there are more options to invest in. But on the other hand, it's not a given that the Burgundy market is going to continue climbing like that. So to, to put things into context, the fine wine market has done really well over the last three, four years. So Bordeaux wines, for example, have risen by a third. So that's pretty good for any investment asset class. But for Burgundy, prices have nearly doubled.
1: And doesn't that, though, bring with it the risk of, of there being a bubble in this new little market?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, especially because Burgundy produces so little compared to other wine regions, especially Bordeaux. So the top estate in Burgundy produce, in some cases, 25, 30 times less than the best estates in Bordeaux. So, obviously, when you have so much demand for one particular thing that's produced in such a little quantity, that brings the risk that there is a bubble, even though, of course, we are not speaking of champagne here.
1: (laughs) Matthew, thank you very much. You're very welcome. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow.